Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Hey, Charles, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing great, Donald. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Great to have you on. Yeah, my pleasure. So, Charles, can you give the um, listeners a little bit about your um, background and um, what you've been doing up to this point in your career? Yeah, yeah. Doing it for a while. So I've been a CPA since 1990. Um, I worked for uh, Big Six at the time, now Big Four Accounting. Um did a little tax work on my own for a while. And then I segued into industry for some time, moving up the ladder pretty quickly. And then kind of segued into uh, working for myself, doing uh, virtual CFO work. And the last couple of years really emphasizes uh, tax work again. And in particular, doing uh, real estate investing as my clientele. Okay. And what, what do you think um, laid the groundwork for you um wanted to go into business for yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, part of it, it just kind of happened. I mean, there was an event that happened a long time ago where I was working for this, I was working for one company and uh, my boss was uh, kind of a degenerate and alcoholic. <laughs> I mean, I'm not just trying to be funny, but he had some issues. And so he called me up we're in the middle of this, of this due diligence project and um, it just wasn't going well. He was trying to buy something. And he said, and I said, and then he goes, uh, we're just going to buy the, the building or, or something like that, you know, but not buy the rest of us. And why are we doing that? Let's just start from scratch. Why are we paying a premium? He says, don't worry about it. Um, I had somebody download the customer contacts and the bill of materials and, you know, all the secret sauce. And I'm like, well, why'd you tell me that? You, you got to walk away. That's crazy talk. You know, I mean, that's completely illegal. You know, I'm going to lose my CPA license and the whole nine yards. Let's just pretend we didn't have this conversation and walk away. And he started yelling at me. And then um, I talked to his boss the next day and it was pretty clear they were going to defend this guy. And I'm like, wow. And it was just, it was a lot of pressure at the time because, you know, my, my wife, uh, she was a stay-at-home mom. I had um, my own, you know, we were about to, we were about to buy a house. 
And having that one boss, that one job was just a ton of pressure. Mm. And especially when I was put in this really, not just unethical, but a legal situation. And so I, uh, yeah, I, I was out of there within two weeks and I was able to find some, uh, some other work. And at the time I didn't realize it, but I, I decided I wasn't going to just work for one person, be beholden because you're really limited, you know, yeah. you, you need to speak your own truth. Yeah. So that, that put me into the, uh, the virtual CFO world, essentially, uh, where I, you know, I was up in New Jersey and there was a lot of, um, good opportunities. There were, um, several hundred mid cap, 600 companies. They were public, but relatively small and they still needed some help. And so I was able to contact the CFO directly and say, Hey, you know, somebody just quit or you're overloaded because of socks is coming on. Let me come on in instead of, you know, calling up a big four or whatever, or a BDO. And I was able to get a lot of work like that. You know, it tend to be pretty long engagements. Mm-hmm. Then I moved back down to Austin in 05. At the time, not as many public companies. Um, so I did some work through uh, VCFO and Bridgepoint. I was able to get some of my own gigs and uh, as a you know virtual CFO. But I just I found out I knew so many people, and people kept on asking, "Do you know a good tax guy?" And even though I wasn't doing taxes directly, I was the tax conduit. I was the direct link to the tax people in a pretty high corporate level for over 20 years. And so I was like, wow, I'm, I'm pretty good at the retail level of talking to people and knowing people and meeting people. And so I started picking it up like four years ago. And then, you know, went to a couple of real estate meetups. I'm like, oh, this is where I need to be. This is, these are some interesting people. It's, uh, you know, some complications and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's good work, you know, it's not, anyway. So that's how that all kind of happened. It was a long answer, sorry. Yeah, and it's um, yeah. So it's interesting how things turn out, right? Because I'm sure at the time that wasn't a good feeling. But no, like, the reason we're all like said, work, yeah, yeah. The reason we're working for ourselves and investing, I think that multiple streams of income plays out much better than just being beholden to one job and one stream of income. Where if you lose that, you're in a jackpot, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a. Uh, I don't think my wife likes the analogy, but you know, you can be married for 30 years and all of a sudden that doesn't work out. You're dating again. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably not as fun as it sounds, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so this way as an entrepreneur, uh, you're kind of dating all the time. Yeah. You have to be on your best behavior and you have to add value, which I like. Hmm. I don't mind. All right. So Charles, so maybe we can get started by talking about the, um, something pretty basic, I think, like, what do you, what would you say are the major types of income? Yeah, I'm going to share screen on a minute. Um, You know, people are going to start with the three income buckets, active income, portfolio, and passive. And this happened in the TRA tax, tax reform act, 1986. So I was actually working at the time for uh, Merrill Lynch as a sales assistant. And um, that was a big thing because back in the day, you could take passive losses, portfolio. It was all just one big thing on your 1040. And you could even have, there wasn't a such thing as at-risk limitations. So you could put $100,000 in an investment and write off 150 the first year, more than you put in against your W-2. And so literally not paying any income forever. 
So they said, no, that's not going to fly. We're what what year was that? If I could, if I could. That was 1986. Okay. Yeah. The TRA 86. Yeah. Um, that was a big one when they broke it, broke it down. And now we're all used to it, you know, in some time. Uh, and then, so we all were kind of familiar with this, you know, the portfolio where it's going to be dividends, interest, gains, royalty, long-term gains. Talk about that in a second. The passive, which is, uh, you know, royalties, regular K-1s, you know, your Olympic partner in um, real estate or Olympic partner in anything, oil and gas, what have you. And then the active income. And so I broke it into some subcategories that make it a little more salient to what your strategy should be. And I'm always interested, is it earned income versus non-earned income? And the main thing is, I mean, you want to have some retirement funds set aside, but it's pretty much limited to what you're going to get in Social Security. You might even be in danger. Who knows what's going to happen with Medicare? So having a bunch of earned income for decades is not necessarily going to help you, you know, especially that maximum earned income, you know, because Social Security is going to basically be capped out. So what you want to have is some non-earned income where it is not subject to Social Security and Medicare. So that's pretty key. Um, a big structure you work with all the time is, you know, most simplest is to have an S corporation. So you have an LLC, you treat it as an S corp, and that enables you to pay yourself a salary. If you're um, an LLC, single LLC, you can't pay yourself a salary and it'll get kicked out later. It's a pain in the neck. So you want to do this S corp election, pay yourself a salary. It's supposed to be a reasonable salary. You know, you can't make a million dollars and pay yourself a $50,000 salary. But if you're making 200 and you're paying yourself a salary of 100,000, that would be reasonable. Or let's say 150. Why would you do that? Well, on the salary, you still have double Social Security Medicare, right? Because the mm-hmm. company's paying it, the LLC has an S Corp, and you're paying as an individual. But the beauty is the net that just shows up as business income less the salaries. So the $50,000 or $48,000 after taxes, that's the part you're not paying earned income on. So that's an active business. So that's one thing about an active business that will help if you're self-employed, you know, even in, in, you know, in, in your business, you know, I mean, I think you probably do it, but so you've got real estate commissions, you have people working for you, and, you know, you're probably least formed as an LLC, but you want to pay yourself a salary. Otherwise, the entire thing could be earned income. Okay. Um, and then the other thing is, can you find active income with a loss? You know, because if you have a passive loss, you can't utilize it against your W-2. But if it's active income, you can. So I'm going to drill on that in a minute. Um, okay. Go ahead, Donald, question on that. So, yeah, so, and when you talk about non-earned business income, mm-hmm. so is that is that just considered business, that's just revenue? That Well, the net, yeah, the net amount. Okay. Yeah, it just it just shows up, you know, the same, you have the other income, like line nine or what have you. So the other income would include business income. It would include royalties, all the K-1s roll up there, you know, some adjustments to your income. Yeah. And just that's one quick question. Sure. Also, so like you, you indicated, you can get an LLC and um, designate it as an S corp. Yes. Is, what what are the 
if you just did a side-by-side -side comparison of, say, you had an LLC and you're, you're categorized as a sole proprietor versus an mm -hmm. S-Corp, what are the advantages, disadvantages of that? It, it's going to be the double social, double social security Medicare is going to be the main thing. If, if you don't have the S-Corp election, you're not paying yourself a salary, that mm -hmm. C-Corp, that's roll, the LLC kind of rolls into like a Schedule C, you know, because because it's a disregarded entity. It's, it's just uh -huh. Donald owning his company. It rolls into a Schedule C um, with that federal ID number. And you can pay other people through that federal ID number. But that net amount is going to be earned income. So you're going to pay more taxes. You're going to pay more taxes, yeah. So the S-Corp, everything would be the same, except there'd be a salary carved out for, for Donald with Social Security and Medicare both sides. And then the net amount would just show up as other income, just like royalties or stuff that's not subject to Social Security and Medicare. Okay, got it, got it. Okay. Um, active real estate. So you can, you know, you could do everything where nobody would doubt that you're an active landlord. You know, it's a, it's a duplex. It's not a, you know, <laughs> they know you, you write the checks. It doesn't have to be everything. Um, but real estate, this is the one disadvantage of real estate where that's, you know, everybody would say it's an active business. If you make over $150,000, you don't get to take that real estate active loss as a landlord hmm. against, against your W-2. So that's unless you're a real estate professional. And then you can even start dipping into the uh, passive losses as well. So that's that's one of those things. Like for some people, it works. And I've worked with a couple um, last year, uh, people just got divorced. You know, it was, it was a hard situation for them and, and they were not making a lot of money and they happened to have some property. I'm like, well, you're not going to pay any taxes, you know, because you're making less than a hundred thousand. So you get to write off up to 25,000 of that real estate losses. And if you're not going to have a big W2, maybe you should get some more property, you know? Okay. So anyway, but uh, yeah, we can drill down the real estate professional probably later, but uh, active real estate is a case where you wouldn't necessarily get to write it off. Um, oil and gas, there's different ways of getting into this. Um, one, the most popular is actually you have a working interest in oil and gas. And when that title working interest shows up, you get to take deductions as well. Um, and it can get pretty substantial. You know, if you're doing a hard drill, you have depletion, um, and anyhow, um, but you also, you're, there are, you're subject to, a, a little more liability and not quite, not quite recourse loans, but some somewhat subject to loans beyond what you put into it. So you have to, but everyone I've talked to said it's very limiting, but if somebody is looking for active losses, real estate working interest is a possibility. Now you look down on 3B, you can also just be a limited partner, which is being, you know, toward the bottom of that page, Passive, you know, passive income costs, passive losses. I kind of like real estate as a pat, you know, has it's matured and it's making money, has passive income to utilize against your real estate losses. So therefore, it's going to come in for free, you know, essentially. Um, oil royalties, other business royalties, uh, they would show up as active. On the portfolio, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Dividend interest, short-term gain, royalty income from other avenues and then the long-term gain. And that's what a lot of real estate investors are gonna have. You know, they're gonna hold it for at least a year. 
And that's a beautiful thing because, you know, it's going to be 15 and then 20% capped out. And that 20% doesn't happen until you make over $500,000. So the, the long-term capital gain is a pretty sweet um, option out there. Um, and then once you sell it, if you have, even if it's passive income, you get to recapture all the passive losses as well to offset that gain. So that's pretty helpful. All right. And then on the passive uh, income, you got those, uh, you know, limited partnerships, a lot of real estate, oil and gas, what have you, um, other royalties that are not part of a trader business. I'm not going to drill down on those, but it's, again, it's like three choices. Um, but the Just main thing quick, is when, um, yeah. other royalties, could that be book royalties, anything like yeah. that, or from TV shows? It, yeah, like it would depend. It would yeah. depend how it's structured. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so on the, you know, the K-1s, you know, you need to realize if somebody's selling you on, you know, the real estate, or we're going to do accelerated or bonus depreciation, you're going to get to write off a bunch of stuff. Usually they do a pretty good job telling you, you may not be able to, get, to utilize that. If you're not a real estate professional, if you don't have other gains, if you have a big W-2, those passive losses just kind of sit there. Mm. Anyway. Unless you're, unless you're, like you said, a real estate professional or, yeah, or your spouse is it? Are there any exactly. kind of spouse for that, or your spouse is? Yeah, it's either way, and then you'd want to have, you know, have it in the spouse's name, the ownership. So, the, you know, the real estate professional, seven hundred fifty hours a year. Um, most of your income is coming from real estate. Those, those, those are two big ones. It's, it's a hard one, like the transition in. You know, if you're making. 200,000 a year and then you want to you want to change over on July 1st and you already made 100,000 and you're getting a bunch of real estate losses that one might not cut it. I, I, I would try to switch to real estate professional for you or your spouse earlier in the year. Okay. And it depends what's going on. You might be you might be doing a bunch of syndication and have a lot of revenue coming in as well. But even a syndicator is the same situation with that earned income. You know, if you're a syndicator and you're getting acquisition fees and it's not, if you're series seven and the acquisition fees are a, a, a straight percentage and that's all you're getting, you, you might be able to call that miscellaneous income and not earned. But anyone else who's not series seven, the acquisition fees is a little different structure and it's earned income. And so you're in that same situation where you'd want the earned income from, from um, acquisition fees or management fees to go underneath an LLC, treat it as an S corp, and do that same mechanics of paying yourself a salary. Okay, so that's a, that's another issue if you're a yeah, syndicator. And one one quick question about that reasonable salary. So, oh yeah, you, yeah, you mentioned <laughs> that if you're making a million dollars, but let's say you're making two hundred thousand and you're not taking a salary as an S corp. I mean, is it mandatory? You take a salary? Yeah, that would that would be that's good. Yeah, that, that's way beyond reasonable. Re, zero is, is uh, zero is unreasonable. Okay. Um, could you argue fifty thousand? Maybe you know, because if you're if it's two hundred thousand dollars and it's just passing through to you and you're not paying yourself a salary, you're taking draws. Yeah, you, you're just circumventing paying any taxes at all. So the way the IRS would look at it if they were to drill down and it's zero, they definitely would. Um, what would it take for somebody to run your business? If it's a $200,000 job, but you can hire a $50,000 admin to run it at that point, 
then that's reasonable, you know? But if you're out there really hustling and building it, you know, then, then it's not really reasonable. But, you know, they're, they're okay. I mean, in a million dollars, probably 150, 200 might work, you know? Because okay. at some point it's, it's kind of running itself, you know, I, I, I would hope. That, that, that's the whole point. You know, you need, it's a great way to look at your business too, is you'd like to be able to sell it to somebody, right? Right, you know? exactly. And you don't want to be where you're just buying a job. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I'm paying $200,000, but it's a highly skilled. I'm doing all the work. Yeah, they can't run without me. So if I die today. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, your business is a lot of other, you know, you have a whole book of business. And right. so it once it's established and you're just kind of bringing in the, you know, essentially the royalties from uh, the annuities, then pretty much anybody can kind of run it, you know, or at least add to their business and have an admin run their part of, you know, Donald Tom's agency. Right. So that, okay. that would be, you know, that'd be the argument. Yeah. That I, I could have a $50,000 or $60,000 person. Therefore that's what I'm going to pay me. And the Delta is going to come up about there. Okay. Okay. All right. And, and so what are the best, what, what do you think, what would you say are the major types of real estate investing with the most attractive, um, attractive tax consequences if you would okay um one thing real estate you're going to talk about the a b and c you know a's in great shape great clients you know good neighborhood doesn't need much work c is you know neighborhood that's not even it's maybe going to transition in a couple of years need some work need some money okay all of these opportunities could be any of them in theory just wanted to approach that. So in bold, I'll just go with the bold first. I got active real estate investor. You're, you're taking care of the duplex down the street or you've carved out um, your house. Maybe you have a couple of single families. You have the passive real estate investor. You have the REITs. And there's basically two ways of getting into REITs. Hard money lending, fix and flip, buy and hold, burr, buy, refin, you know, renovate, refinance, redo it. Bed and breakfast or short-term rentals with services. So there's probably some others, but that, that's pretty good broad strokes. Okay. okay. Um, active real estate investor. Um, if you're not making... The one thing about an active real estate investor, you're probably going to be single family houses or duplexes or fourplexes. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of work. It's hard to make money, you know. I don't know. We were at the, the meetup Tuesday. We were asking people the other day, what, what would you invest in if you had, a, you know, you had a friend who doesn't really need the money. They just got a $50,000 windfall. And everybody pretty much said, and one guy said of the REIT, but it was the same underlying principle, the multifamily. Yeah. Because you have the synergies. You also have the tax advantages, which mm-hmm. I, I, I don't understand those tax advantages. I mean, I understand them. I don't think they're a good policy. I'll, we may talk about that later, but they are what they are. So I'm going to take advantage of them. And I, I'm going to recommend it. But you can buy a multifamily uh, apartment, barely do any work to it. And it's the new purchase price that you're going to be able to do bonus depreciation, accelerated depreciation, and have a ton of write-offs the very first year if you're able to take them. If not, they're just sitting there and they're going to aggregate for a future transaction, but active real estate. Yeah. You can make some money on that for sure. Just a lot more work. And if you're making over $250,000, I mean, 150, then 
you don't even get to take the losses. Um, what's interesting is, is some of these people who hold the real estate, at some point, those losses come in handy because they fully depreciate it. You know, they, you, you do that bonus depreciation. So bonus depreciation quickly, it, uh, I'll say accelerated first, which is you pull out the items that are between five and 15 years. Think about it, you buy a house or an apartment, the roof is not going to last 27 and a half years, or, you know, yeah. um, this, uh, the, uh, the carpet is not going to last. Um, the cabinetry, the crown molding, the paint, the flooring, all those items, even the driveway, you know. And so what happens with accelerated depreciation and cost segregation, if you pay $300,000 for a house, let's say the land is worth 50 and you can get that pretty much off the Travis County appraisal or wherever county it is, what the land is worth. And then you have 250 left. So at least $50,000 is some of those short run things we were talking about, probably more. And you can, you can pay somebody, an engineer. I wouldn't recommend doing a major cost segregation on a fourplex on an apartment. Yes, you know, it's worth doing it. But anyway, so yeah, $50,000, that's all the smaller stuff. You can, back in the day, you could take that 50,000 and then instead of depreciating it over 27 and a half years, you would do it over five or 15, whichever is appropriate. Now it's even better because you do, you get to do the bonus depreciation and take that 50,000 or more and write it off the entire first year. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty sweet thing. And you can do that again in 22 and 2023, it's 80% of that and faces out. And that could be like, you're not doing anything new. And then anything you knew you do is going to be bonus depreciation. You know, if you have to knock down a wall and new one in, that's going to be bonus. That's going to be hundred percent as opposed to depreciating it over 27 and a half years. Yeah. Quick question. So yeah, you mentioned that anything you do in the future. So if you've already done a cost segregation study on your mm-hmm. asset and you go in and do some renovations, do you have to do another one or is that, how, how does that work? So yeah, have- in theory you would, I mean, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to hire an engineer because you, you knew what you spent on it. The engineering study or a CPA doing a quick cost seg on a, on a fourplex is based on something you've already purchased. Mm-hmm. You have invoices and know exactly what you pay for. You know, and that would be your defense to say, this is a, a seven-year cabinet. This is a five-year okay. carpet. This is a 15-year roof. This is... That, that building was so bad off, we had to tear it down. And then some of that's going to have to be 27 and a half years for the building itself. Okay. Uh, but, you know, the renovation would have to be pretty major and structural for not to all go through bonus, I'd imagine. I guess okay. question. Okay, got it. All right, so Charles, let's, um, if we could, let's jump to um, multi-year planning. I know in, yeah, the past, yeah. in the past, you've talked about that. Um, so could you give so, some examples for both self-directed and, and non-retirement investing of how much yeah, of your yeah. plan will work? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, on the, on the active, is in, let's say you have an active portfolio and you make a fair amount of money and you don't get to write it off. So the multi-year planning would be, I'm going to do a cost segregation on this uh, little house I purchased or this duplex. I'm, I'm going to have mo- you know, a good part of the depreciation up front. I'm not going to pay any taxes, right? And then I'm also paying down my mortgage gradually. So at first I'd have loss I can't take, loss I can't take, loss I can't take. 
And then all of a sudden, by the seventh year, you're paying less interest, right? You're, you've depreciated you know, a good part except for the building and rents are going up. And so now you have positive income. You know, it, it might be, it's probably cash flowing positively, but it was negative tax because depreciation. You get down the road and you have to say, huh, um, now I have, well, you're going to be able to, to use the prior losses they carry forward. So that'd be part of the planning. When does it start? At what point do you run out of losses? And maybe in the 15th year, now I have beautiful cash flow and I have um, taxable income. And I've already used up on my PAL, my you know, prior losses. So what you would do in that case, either don't sweat it and say, it's making so much money, I don't care, or, or realize I'm going to buy that second property. I like the active. It works for me. I'm a handy guy. I've had good luck with tenants. Uh, or, or you can price somebody to find the tenants and it still be active. You know, that's the only thing they do. And so you'd say, I, I, I want to I never pay taxes on this. Well, the only way to do that in that scenario is you have to buy the second, you know, the second property, which in 15 years, help you're in pretty good shape. So that's, that's an active example. Um, then on, on the passive side, it could be the same thing where you're not being able to take advantage. You got big loss because of appreciation, still loss, et cetera. And then the third or fifth year, like they tell you they're probably going to do, this was just kind of a facelift. They're going to sell it at a capital gain. So what can you do? You know, you can either structure it and know, okay, it's coming in the year where, I'm going to be 69 and, and no, and that's, and, and I'm no longer working full-time or whatever. So I don't, I don't really care. And I'm, you know, paying 15% capital gains. It's not a big deal. But if it happens, we're like, okay, I'm 28 years old and in three years, I'm going to get slammed with this and I'm doing well, my salary is going to be pretty high. Then you need to think about buying other, you know, leverage property and accelerate depreciation for when it rolls out, particularly if it's in yeah, a retirement fund. So if you're in a retirement fund, you have where it's self-directed, which is a beautiful thing, because that, that's most people, a lot of their, they, they're not sitting on a ton of cash. They're sitting on, if they're you know, doing fairly well, they have equity in their home and hopefully they have a 401k, right? I mean, yeah. those are where, otherwise most people are kind of like, spending money on vacation or what have you or a new car and not just having excess assets, which they should, but they won't, you want to have, you know, so the planning situation with that within a retirement account is you have a 401k, you've either left the job or they allow you to roll that 401k or the IRA into a self-directed account. And from there, you can buy real estate. You can do passive real estate. You can do active real estate. You know, you can, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a business, but you can buy a property by itself or through an LLC. And if it's, if it's not a solo 401k, it's subject to UBIT, unrelated business income taxes. If it's a business, I'll talk about that a second. And UDFI, un, uh, unrelated debt finance income where if it's your retirement account and it's leveraged and it's not a solo 401k, you're gonna to have to pay income tax inside the retirement account based on how much leverage there was. 
All right. So okay. you, 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 you have enough money, you rolled it into a self-directed IRA or self-directed 401k. Cause you're like, ah, the market's fine, but I'm going to put some money into what I know what's going to take advantage of inflation. You put a hundred thousand in, you write off 50,000 because it's pretty aggressive cost segregation. It's just in your IRA. So the write-off doesn't matter. And then maybe it, you know, it's cash flowing, which is nice. Uh, the loss gets a little less and less. And then you have this long-term gain. So the long-term gain, let's say that in the fifth year in this IRA, that would be subject to the debt finance, the uh, UDFI, the unrelated debt finance. So if you had a hundred thousand, let's say double, okay. So you have a hundred thousand dollar gain and it was leveraged 75%, pretty normal. You would have a long-term gain inside your IRA for $75,000. Now the beauty is it, at first it, it gets, it, it it gets uh, treated as, as a, a trust rate. So it could be up to 37% before you need it. But if it's a long-term gain, it would be treated as a long-term gain with those lower rates. It still stinks. You know, it's an IRA. You're, you, you want it to accumulate without paying taxes. But then you have the situation of a leveraged transaction where you do have to pay taxes. So what do you do? You have a $100,000 gain, but you probably had $75,000 of losses in the prior years, right? So they offset that. The offset inside the IRA is a lot easier than those, the, the portfolio bucket um, and passive and, and active. So you still have a $25,000 gain that you'd have to deal with times the leverage. It's not a ton of money. You'd be okay. But if you were like, I just don't want to pay taxes in the IRA, it, it's against you know, everything I want to do. What the game plan would be, that year you need to buy a new property. Now, the tough thing is you can't control these partnerships, you know? So if you're counting on the money from partnership one to buy partnership two, that might be an issue, you know? I mean, hopefully you have a good conversation. A lot of these partnerships are doing, you know, a land development, then they're going to go vertical and they allow everybody and you probably know what's going on. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. even if they, you should always keep your eyes open, ready for the next investment. Okay. So if it's an IRA, it's sitting around and you just double and all you need to do is basically cover the gain part of it. So in that case, the long-term planning would be, I need to realize in my IRA, I'm going to buy something else, another leveraged probably real estate deal to have losses in that deal to offset, offset the gain in the other. Again, there's more flexibility as opposed to the real world, the way things go. Because in the real world, if you're, if you're a real estate professional, you put all your real estate in one bucket and they can all offset each other. If you're not a real estate professional, you could have a gain in one and then the passive losses in the second one don't necessarily help out, but they do help in the uh, retirement accounts. So to me, it's, it's in the long-term planning is when is the exit going to be and you probably want to buy something else or realize you're going to be in a lower income. Or maybe that's the year when your spouse converts to real estate professional. Okay. And I have a scenario for you, Charles. So, and I know there's no one size fits all. Everybody has yeah. different objectives, but let's say I'm your client and I come to you and say, Charles, I have $150,000 I want to put into, into real estate. So should I put it into a REIT or a multifamily? What advice would you give on that in that scenario? Yeah. 
Yeah, this came up the other day. Um, well, there's a couple things, you know, on the REITs, there's, there's two ways. You can do a REIT on the, uh, on the stock market, you know. I mean, it's, sure. and the, the returns are not as good. Um, so I'm going to say it's probably going to be a private REIT is what we're thinking of. So is the okay. private REIT. One thing about a private REIT, it's not going to have the liquidity that you would have in the market, but it will have more upside. Um, the nice thing about a REIT is you have the diversification. You know, it's going to, you can see what it is. You can, maybe it's focusing on medical property. Maybe it's all over the U.S. Maybe it's the Eastern Seaboard. Um, so yeah, the no, one size doesn't fit all. I have to look at your current portfolio. You know, if you're, if you're living in Austin, you have no other assets except your house is worth a, you know, a million dollars in equity. I wouldn't buy real estate as your next investment. You know what I mean? In Austin, you know, but let's say you have a little more diversification. You have a, a, a nice stock portfolio, you have the retirement, you, you know, the, the question is how old are you, you know? When are you going to uh, retire? What's is anything going to change in your tax brackets? So I would say, yeah. So it, so tell me, give me lay out the person's age and, and and risk tolerance, and I'll give some more answers. Okay. So yeah, he's forty years old. Him and his wife have W two jobs, probably with a combined income. That's why they have a combined income of five hundred thousand. Okay. Yeah. So, so both pretty nice W two jobs. What would you recommend for that? Yeah, and that's an interesting. You know, so it's five hundred thousand dollars. You know, the long term gains are going are to come in at twenty percent plus three point eight percent for the net investment income. So that's non significant, uh, and they're paying a lot of taxes. I mean, I would definitely talk to them. So the one hundred and fifty, and that's sitting outside an IRA. So they can't. They have W twos, and I'm hoping they're already maximizing their four hundred one k and everything. The 150 is outside any retirement options. Um, and in their case, I would, let's say this, the, the kids, cut, cut, you know, they, the college education stuff is all set as well. All right. So they're just trying to really increase their wealth and maybe change their life. And they're pretty young. Um, so I would probably take more risk, I, I would say. And I probably would, I, I would start probably looking at that multifamily option you know, the multifamily, you know, where you're basically doing, doing facelifts is just, it's the least amount of risk, you know, mm -hmm. and you can get good rewards, the good, well, the taxes are going to make a big difference. Um, it's a part of me. I always like diversification of time and you can do it in real estate as well. So diversification time in the stock market, you know, that income averaging, you know, you, you buy a certain amount of, of S&P index every month, when it goes down, you're like, great, I just brought more, you know, same thing with real estate. So I, I would, I would question, put, I would, I would probably do three $50,000 deals, you know, okay. I would do with people I know, um, or that you knew if you're advising them, um, I would probably have at least one of them, you know, outside of Texas, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that kind of, yeah, it depends. And if they're trying to do the highest risk, it's a different, you know, they might, they might want to do some vertical place, you know, where they're actually building and creating property. That'd be a great thing to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, without really knowing the whole risk tolerance, I would try to diversify um, geographically, you know, you might do a uh, storage units are pretty gold, maybe a nice multifamily, and then maybe, you know, a vertical multifamily.
okay. fifty thousand each, and, and not have not doing it all at the same time. You know, <laughs> anyway, that that that's kind of my global take take on it. And, okay. and, and also realize you one thing is one has one thing unwinds to be helping some more cash to put in the next one. You know, you're kind of committing to avoiding that twenty three point eight percent long term gain because you're going to do it again. Okay. You know. And that's, that's why the staggered time, I think, is kind of important as well. And that long-term planning. Okay, excellent. All right, Charles. And before we jump into the lightning round, I wanted to um, ask one more question. So why, if, if, I, if I'm asking you, I'm, I don't know too much about taxes. You know, we all hear so much mm-hmm. on the news, so much political stuff about, oh, it's patriotic to pay your taxes. Why is tax planning and tax mitigation so important in your in your opinion. Well, I'm, I I think we're all obligated to pay taxes, right? You know, um, I, I don't think it's. I think avoiding taxes is not patriotic at all. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I mean, yeah, I don't want tax avoidance, <laughs> you know? but so so but at the end within, of the day, within the law, mitigation within, within the, law, the law. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's you then within the law, you, you want to find you know find the best way to, most of it is deferring taxes at the end of the day. That's what you need to think about. You know, if there's ever a choice of paying Uncle Sam later or today, always go later, you know? So that's, that's the thing, you know, un, unless you're in a really low bracket, you know, that's, the, that's, that's why it's so important to look at, you know, things change, life changes. You know, you might be caring for, you know, an elderly um, parent, that parent might be a windfall when they pass, you know, or they might have some debt, you know, depending on what state you're living, you have to deal with. Um, yeah, so it's just important to do it right. Go by the rules and then, you know, be proactive and, and not have to pay any more and defer because you can basically defer and defer and defer to you pass away if you do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if you continue to grow, you know, these guys, you know, Brad Schumacher folks who, you know, making millions and say they never pay taxes. And I believe them and it's legit. But the one philosophy you have to realize for that to work is you have to continue to grow. Yeah. You know, yeah. you have to buy more depreciable assets to offset the gains of the other one, even for the real estate professional. Yeah. And that's, and so my whole purpose in asking that is not to say we should avoid, but yeah, our, our Congress has created these laws for us to, use them. So I think it's a lot of confusion when you hear you hear big corporations not paying any taxes or a certain president didn't pay any taxes this year. I mean they're they're working within the within the laws that this country created. So it's not necessarily bad. So I think it's important for people to understand, drown out all the noise. These are laws you can work with to your benefit. Yeah. I mean you do it correctly. My personal position I I don't want to be aggressive enough where I have to go to court. You know, that's. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm not going to, you know, there's, you can't write, well, you, these people think you can write something off and pay your kid and the kid's not paying income tax on it. Now that there's just some lot that's illegal, but that's, that's possibly what was going on with some of the folks we're kind of alluding to. Mm-hmm. Okay, but yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah the laws are out there. There you, you can you can work it pretty well. 
it, it is hard. That W two person is is actually the hardest. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I think. I think they definitely favor entrepreneurs and investors. So it behooves you to to go into those and again work within the laws to mitigate those taxes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you look at. I mean, the, the Trump families in real estate, so they probably have they they, they got a huge leg up there. Yeah, you know that is totally legitimate. Yeah, absolutely. and then you know, or could they be aggressive for the S corps and payments and stuff? Sure, who knows? And and also another way to let's say to pull pay, you're like, okay, you're never paying taxes. How are you getting cash out? What's well, the refi? If you're if you're refinancing property, it's not income. You just put more debt on the books. But the property is worth a lot more, so you're not necessarily more leverage, you know, on paper. So you do the refi to pull money out. So that's what some you know some folks are doing. Okay. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. So let's hop into the um, lightning round. Let's see what's behind the curtains there. All right. So Charles, what what book or books have um, greatly influenced influenced your life? I'd say uh, Catcher in the Rye, To Kill a Mockingbird, We're All Doing Time, New Testament. Okay. And what did you like? Which one did you, which one of those did you like the most? Well. I mean, the most influential is going to be New Testament, but the most, I, I, Catch and Rye was the first adult book I read that made me laugh out loud. I just, I just loved the perspective. You know, it was like someone else seeing the absurdity. I really related to that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I read, I read it again recently. Okay. And, um, what failure or perceived failure has allowed you a greater success later? Yeah, it would be that story I told earlier um, where, you know, I was doing really well, you know, VP finance, CFO for these companies, it was privately held, but big. And, you know, I, I was in line to probably be a president of one of these smaller companies real quickly. And um, I didn't look the other way. So that didn't work out, but I was able to move mm -hmm. on to, you know, entrepreneurial stuff. And that was much more enjoyable and fruitful in, in the end. Okay. And if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Common sense gun laws now. Mm -hmm. Okay. No more to say on that one. Absolutely. All right. And what is a, do you have a habit or routine that you really love or enjoy? Yeah, I try to do yoga every day. It serves a lot of purpose. You know, there's a meditation, the Shavasana, getting some exercise, but also just getting grounded. So, yeah, it's really important to me. Okay, how long have you been doing yoga? 12 years. Okay, wow. And you say you meditate as well? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Even those, even those couple of minutes when I'm in Shavasana, just trying to, yeah, sometimes before class. Okay. Are you up pretty, pretty early in the mornings? Um, no, not particularly, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, just, 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 I used to be, you know, pretty much get up like 7.30 active. Now it's more like 8, just because tax season was pretty crazy. I was just working later and later. Just like within two. Okay. All right. And what's your favorite place to think big? 
Uh, it'd be a long walk. Okay. Yeah. Nothing too taxing. Yeah, especially if it's in nature. Okay. And Charles, I know you're pretty busy, and you, I mean, you probably get a lot of requests and asks from different people. What have you become better at saying no to? Um, probably, probably new clients. I mean, I'm still accepting new clients, but I'm not accepting um, smaller clients or clients where I'm getting a vibe or they're going to be, you know, pretty needy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so and you have I, a, you have a certain criteria that you look at when you're getting. Yeah, I want them. Clients. Yes. Yeah, I want them maybe you know take advantage of what I have to offer. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, like if I, if I talk to somebody and, and they're talking about pricing the first you know minute or so, and you know, I got a feeling you know I, I'm not out there competing on price, even though you know I'm a lot less than you know, the big firms downtown. Right. So but yeah, yeah I want to add. I want to add value. Okay. Yeah, and you do put a value on your worth, though. It sounds like. So. I, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I don't want to just do a tax return. You know. All right, and last one and most deep, in my opinion, is what important truths do very few people agree with you on? Um, I'm going to say, I talked about it earlier, tax breaks on minor facelifts. Um, I, I, I take advantage of myself as a passive investor. Um, I recommend my clients doing it, but it's not a good tax position if you're trying to, you know, change policy. So this is from uh, 2017, I believe, the Tax Reform Act, mm-hmm. where they did the uh, the cost segregation. And my, my point is, if you're just doing a facelift, and some of these aren't even facelifts, they're just putting a new sign up, and you look at the model. And all they're doing is increase, and they see it's in the rents increasing, you know, 10, 15% a year. Well, why are we giving us tax breaks where all we're doing is increasing rent? Mm-hmm. You know, and like, so, you know, when I go to, go to, you know, the t- uh, luncheon or meetup, you know, people are like, I oh, know, and they can talk about how we've made the neighborhood better. I, I, I think you really need to be in the C's. You need to be yeah. a class C that you're really helping out. But if you're a class A or a B plus, and we said earlier, that's the best, it's the least amount of risk just mm-hmm. to do a facelift. You know, you can get the IRR 15, 20%, plus. you know, I mean, it's crazy because rents keep on going up and real estate taxes keep on going up, but they just pass it on to the investor. Interest rates going up, they're going to pass it on to not the investor to the to the render. And so at the end of the day, why did you make a, a why did you make a law that's not going to benefit the renters at all? You're right. saying the rent is too much high. Let's motivate the investors, but that's not what you've done. You know, if it's just a facelift and a sign, we're just pushing paper. You know, especially if I'm a passive investor, also I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm sending them, I'm sending some money and I'm getting to K1 and hopefully some distributions and, you know, I know what's up, but no, I didn't do anything. So if it were me, I'd be more aggressive on the new bills for tax purposes. You know, I, 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 I mean, I, you, you don't want to, you don't want to play around with cost segregation studies. You know, they are what they are, 
but maybe there's a way of that initial building on a new vertical. You know, you're, you're putting more inventory in that they get to appreciate that quicker. Hmm. So give tax incentives even more than we have out there for the verticals. For the new build, you're least increasing inventory. But tax incentives for just facelifts? Yeah. <laughs> you're making it super... It's attractive because we're never going to pay taxes for people like you and me and folks in California. And all they're going to do is just keep on buying and keep on investing. Yeah. It just makes it really hard on the renters. So why do you have a policy that makes it even worse for the renters? So, yeah. Not to get a damper, but that's, that's my take. You know? Yeah. All right. Good stuff. Yeah. In the meantime, you take advantage of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Say, hey, Congressman, I'm, I'm going to continue to utilize this. is great, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Charles, that's excellent. So before we jump off, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, collaborate with you, maybe get your advice on, on their scenarios or their situation, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, the best way would be an email. Um, or, you know, if somebody were to text me, tell me who they are, I get a lot of you know, unsolicited text <laughs> or phone calls, text on who they are. But uh, for email, it is um, charlie at devaneycpa.com. Um, is there a little chat here? Um, yeah, I'll we'll actually run it across the bottom of the screen. So, okay. We'll... Yes, it's charlie ey at devaneycpa.com. Okay, excellent. Yeah. All right. Excellent, Charles. So thank you so much for coming on yeah, and sharing, you. sharing your advice. Fun. I really enjoyed this conversation. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, Head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.